Hello there. Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today on the show, we are joined by new friend Natasha Sony to talk about an issue that has been, uh, it's been raging across America for the past year or so, and that is obviously critical race theory. Now, if you ask, and I talk about this in the episode, if you ask 100 people to define critical race theory, you're going to get pretty much 100 different definitions. And that's where the biggest problem lies and the biggest confusion lies when we talk about critical race theory. Because within that group of 100 definitions, there's a very good chance you're going to get a few definitions that are more on the, quote, extreme side. And those individuals give the other side legitimate and valid points to criticize. Critical race theory does not mean all white individuals have KKK robes hanging up in their closets, but some people who support the theory firmly believe and teach that. And that does create problems. I will continue to say it because it's vitally important. But words matter, and how we use those words matter even more. America's history is not a perfect example of how to build a country. It's a pretty damn decent example but it's not perfect. Really acting like it is, is a fallacy to those who continue to work hard today to improve upon our past. Being aware of how we can be better urges us to be stronger and wiser. Racism is a real problem. It's not made up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to break it to you if you're just finding out. So why would we not want to try and understand it, create solutions, avoid past mistakes? It's important to understand our past, the ins and outs. Otherwise, we're destined to repeat it. Juneteenth is now an official holiday. Cool. Another <laughs> symbolic victory. But we need material change. Are we really needing to have a conversation about teachers talking about the racisms of our past? What, what are we afraid of? Really? Making an official holiday to celebrate the emancipation of African-American slaves, but being afraid of your kid learning about why? Those two things don't add up. Now is a perfect time to have these conversations, find a solution to the confusion, to create a path forward that is clear and is respected by everyone. I understand teaching about history isn't an easy task, but avoiding the dark clouds of history makes it much, much harder. And so we need to continue to have conversations like the conversation Natasha and I will be having shortly, exploring these topics and being open to crossing the political spectrum to build connection. It's honestly not hard to create a better tomorrow, but the work has to be put in today. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 66 titled Critical Location Theory with Natasha Sony. Enjoy! And a quick note before we head into the episode, Water Cooler Talk and myself will be on a summer break until the end of August. We will be back with new conversations and a few new surprises that have been a, a very, very long time in the making that I'm proud to finally release but until then enjoy my conversation with natasha this is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world and while many of these stories may seem fake they're absolutely not because they're real this is from the conversation politics october 6th 2020 why friendships are falling apart over politics former supreme court justices ruth bader ginsburg and antonin scalia were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Yet, despite their obvious legal disagreements, the liberal Ginsburg once described herself and the conservative Scalia as best buddies. However, this connection across ideologies is a bit surprising today. A recent Pew study showed just how deep the divide between conflicting political viewpoints has become 
with roughly 40% of registered voters saying they do not have a single close friend of the opposing political party. The study was conducted from 11,001 U.S. adults, you always have to get that one in there, Natasha, between July 27th and August 2nd, 2020. The old mantra, never discuss religion or politics, if I listened to that advice, I wouldn't have a show, was a recognition that political differences can create awkward social situations, and the mere prospect of discussing divisive topics can make you feel anxious and threatened. Yet, something about this moment seems to have put a particular strain on our personal relationship. Two key features continue to show themselves to enhance that divide. The role of social media, and the way in which political affiliations have become linked to morality and identity. While social media may have its benefits, it's more difficult to have an in-depth, respectful discussion of issues while online. Well, don't I know that well. Furthermore, social media companies have financial incentives to keep people engaged, enraged, and scrolling through their platform for hours on end. Second, it seems as though political issues are becoming more intertwined with an individual's identity and sense of morality when being a supporter of a particular politician or party is a strong part of one's sense of identity, it may be easier to view the other side in a negative way, to villainize them. But there is hope. The Pew survey suggests that 6 in 10 registered voters do have close friends on the other side of the political divide, just as so-called red states and blue states are all, well, they're all actually purple states and contain people across the political spectrum. Many American friendships remain intact, despite the continued stressful election cycles of American politics. And oh boy, oh boy, have they been stressful. I don't know about yourself, but you know, obviously on the show, I'm very open on sharing you know, where I stand politically. I tend to be a bit more independently moderate. You know, the past two presidential elections, I voted independent. But when it gets to, you know, kind of the Senate and the House and local elections, I tend to vote more left leaning. And I think one of those reasons was I grew up in a household where both parents were kind of on either side of the political spectrum. And, you know, through travel, I was kind of able to really meet a lot of people with different viewpoints, as we we're talking about before we went on the record, you know, I think having all those political differences within a friend group has really, at least in my experience, helped me see the world in such a broader way than just being kind of put into like one political party or the other, which I understand how people can kind of get into that idea of the Democratic Party is me, the Republican Party is me, the Green Party is me, the Libertarian Party is me. So do you, how do you, like when you're putting together your friend group, is that something you think about? Is there political ideologies? So it's interesting that you mention all of that. And I think I'll preface all of this by saying, um, just for the audience, I'm sure you could probably guess this from just reading my posts and looking at my profile, Adam, but um, I am definitely very progressive, leftist, mm -hmm. whatever you'd like to call it. And so I think that definitely skews my thoughts on this for sure. And one thing I will say too, is that I, we all have our echo chambers and I definitely have one as well. But I do think that through a lot of the roles that I've had through my current job, I do have to have a lot of conversations with folks who are on the opposite side of what I believe, or even folks who are, who may not agree with me on everything. Like they may vote the same way I do, but they might not be as far left as I am. Mm -hmm. So there are levels to everything. So if it's someone I'm dating, 
I cannot date someone who is conservative by any means. Um, I will say that my current partner and I, we are both on the left. Um, we definitely do not agree on everything. And we have a lot of debates um, about this, which is which is totally fine. It is distressing at times. But for the field in which I reside, it helps to keep me on my toes to make sure that I'm able to articulate everything that I believe in a constructive way um, and make sure that I'm always, you know, facts based, um, not that I would discount feelings. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I think we should recognize is, you know, the fact that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg RBG said that um, she and Scalia were best buddies. We have to keep in mind that most people in power have a very streamlined view of how they see things. And while people look at RBG as a progressive champion, she is progressive for white women. She did not do much for people of color, for indigenous folks. Um, she voted in favor of pipelines. And a lot of this kind of arose more so around the time of her death, which, you know, on one hand was obviously really tragic. But on the other hand, it was hard to reckon with just because she wasn't that progressive champion that everyone believed she was. Yeah, she, she was very progressive mm -hmm. for someone from her time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's how a lot of people saw her. And then, you know, as we'll talk more about kind of in the second story, you know, a lot of people, you know, look at a word like progressive and they look at it in the context of today it kind of is lost that oh ruth ginsburg was how old was she when she passed she was in her 90s i believe ruth bader ginsburg died at the age of 87 but she's had a very long life and she's had a very different experience than you or i who are in our you know young 20s mm -hmm. exactly and you know she made a lot of strides back in the day uh and that's that's awesome. But party politics truly are part of the bane of this country's existence, just because a lot of the values that for which the left fights, they're politicized. So like everything today is political, which is why it's really hard to avoid talking about those types of things with with your friends, with classmates, colleagues, whoever it is, like you can't avoid those conversations anymore, because you realize how much people's lives are politicized and human rights issues are politicized. Why is it even a debate that everyone should have health care? It doesn't really make sense, but that's where we're at. And I feel like that's what causes the divide more so than the viewpoints people have themselves. I mean, I remember around the time of the election uh, this past November, Fox News asked their viewers if they would support Medicare for all, um, but they phrased it a different way. I don't remember the exact percentage, but the majority of their viewers who are conservative said that they do. According to a pre-election 2020 poll, 72% of Fox News viewers reported either strongly or somewhat being in support of a government-run healthcare plan. Is it really the actual issue or is it just how it's presented? Well, yeah, I think you look at something like the vaccine rollout, which is has been free. I mean, 
you know, if you do have insurance, it does charge your insurance, but to you, it's free. And that's a, a main tenant of something like Medicare for All. And people have been loving that the fact that they can go and get this vaccine if they want to get the vaccine and if they think it's right for them, that it, it is free. I can just walk into, you know, I just walked into a, a health partner's clinic and I said, hey, I would love a vaccine. And boom, within, you know, 15 minutes, I was in and out, didn't have to pay a single thing. And that's how, you know, that tenant of, you know, Medicare or uh, healthcare for all should be. And yeah, I think you said it perfectly. It's the way these things are phrased that really defines how people see it. And something like Fox News, you know, might frame something that leans more right, whereas someone like CNN is going to lean a story more left because they understand their audience and they understand how they can get that audience to watch their shows because they don't get funding and they don't make money from investors if nobody watches their shows. So Exactly. And I think too, the reason why I know the article kind of pointed to the fact that nowadays, um, as we're talking about, things are a lot more divisive. And I think that's only because for the first time, we've actually started to reckon with the history of this country and this world, right? Like, mm, that's a good point. Racism isn't new. You know, we knew climate change was coming. We knew all these things were coming. We knew that this was indigenous land before the settlers came here, right? So I think that people need to realize, and we'll talk more about this with the second article, but a lot of what's happening now is systemic. Everything has a root cause. The fact that we're addressing it now, I feel like is centuries late. And if that's going to cause more of a divide, then so be it. Because we're getting uncomfortable because we have to face the music, social media, which was kind of like what the second part of the article touched on a lot, um, has really opened our eyes to that because everything is being exposed. And it can be overwhelming. I think that both the right and the left have issues with being hypocritical, um, with being toxic. So I'm not gonna sit here and say that Every leftist is perfect, that leftist viewpoints are perfect, because I think that there is room in both camps and across the spectrum to shut people out. And even if we preach like inclusion, even if we preach education, how much of that is actually happening when someone is condemned or canceled uh, with every single thing that they say? Yeah, I've always really been in the camp that we've been having these conversations since the beginning of time. It's just we've been having them in private. And now something like social, I beg on social media a lot. Like this article says, there there are benefits to social media. We're having this conversation because of social media. But social media has given the ability for everyone in the world to have the ability to have a voice. And so now these private conversations aren't private anymore. And we're starting to really see and learn more about people because prior to social media, you may talk to your neighbor about, oh, you know, that black family moved in. A lot of white individuals looked at a black family in a neighborhood as a negative on the neighborhood. So they would have that conversation among themselves. But now they have the opportunity to connect with people on a worldwide spectrum to share those thoughts and to find more people that also share those thoughts. Because at the end of the day, humanity is all about connecting and creating communities. And, you know, there's a lot of communities out there in the world that I don't agree with, but they find each other and they've been able to find each other through the internet and through social media because now those thoughts have become public. Yeah, 100%. And again, a lot of it is skewed. So we all look to 
you know, whether it be CNN or Fox News or any newspaper, and we think that everything that they say is fact, yes. um, that everything that they say is phrased correctly, is exactly what it is. There's no other story behind it. But the issue is taglines and titles of articles, the way that they're worded can change so much. Like how many people actually read an entire article? Um, versus just reading the title of something, right? Because that's what you're going to I have see. this podcast exactly for that reason. People mm-hmm. don't read those headlines or people don't read the stories. They just read a headline. And the whole premise of the show is to take that clickbaity headline and say, hey, there's actually a bigger conversation than just what's being said. Definitely. And I think, too, because we've been forced to face the music, right, and uh, reckon with our history People are angry. Like, it doesn't matter what your viewpoints are. I think that people on the right, people on the left, everyone in between is upset and angry about something. And oftentimes, it kind of comes full circle. Like, I don't trust the government, but conservatives don't trust the government either. We just don't trust it for different reasons, almost, right? Yeah, no, that's like a very good point. Like, one of the conversations or conservative ideals that I believe in is smaller government. And, you know, that's not something that's necessarily shared by the left, which technically I would be considered by the way I vote more left leaning. And I think, too, I would trust the government and support it. And I think the reason why people on the left like big government is because it's seen as something that should be like our savior. It's seen as something that should be giving equitable treatment to everyone. And if that were the case, um, this would be an entirely different conversation, <laughs> right? But yeah. it's not the case. It's because the government is establishment. You know, even if you have Democrats in office, they're all mostly white, mostly men, mostly old-ish. They all grew up with a certain amount of privilege that a lot of the U.S. and a lot of the folks who live here don't have. It's really challenging to see them vote for what's comfortable rather than what is right. Voting against pipelines or voting to dismantle the police, those are definitely uncomfortable things. Like someone is going to lose out. Someone is not going to get funding from somewhere. Um, And that's a whole nother issue with capitalism and money and how that influences everything, which I think it does a lot. Unfortunately, in this world, what's right isn't what's easy. And at the end of the day, anyone in power or most people in power are contributing to some community's harm. Yeah. And I don't know how you see this, but there's no perfect utopia of what a government can be. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be some group that is on the short end of the stick of a government policy. And the basic ideals of government should be to not have that short end of the stick always end up in the same person's hand, which, you know, it tends to do through, you know, the 200 plus years of uh, US politics so far. I I don't I just see it as it's almost impossible to not hurt someone, you know, there's always going to be a decision that's made that someone doesn't agree with, you know, you know, like the pipeline, I I, uh, agree with your stance on the pipeline, but there's going to be someone on the other end of that pipeline stance that has facts has figures that say that the pipeline is the right move. And, you know, kind of bringing this back to friendship, I think that's why it's so important to kind of have a more diverse friend group. And like you said, you can kind of pick and choose what topics you're like, if someone really believes in this, I don't want to be around that person because I really believe in this and I feel strongly about that. And I think that's totally fine. I mean, you're 
totally allowed to surround yourself with whoever the F you want to surround yourself with. But if you're willing to have other people in your life that you trust, and that's the big thing, trust, that can challenge you on your beliefs, I think it's really important. The good point that you really brought up is relationships and romantic relationships. That's a whole nother can of worms because friends are different than somebody you're romantically involved with. There's a different level of connection between someone that you have romantic feelings for that you love. I do think it's totally fine if you don't challenge yourself, you know, politically when it comes to romantic feelings, because romantic feelings just in general are so challenging. Mm -hmm. Adding another layer of stress isn't always the best thing. And it's totally fine. I think having someone who believes in similar things to have a romantic partnership with, because like I said, there's just so many other stresses to being in a romantic partnership that adding on another one doesn't always make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say that given the things that I have seen in my life, given the things that I learned while in college, while being an activist, while being an organizer, um, I'm at the point where my tolerance for viewpoints that aren't similar to mine is definitely not as high as that as people would probably say it should be that being said it's not that i won't listen to folks mm -hmm. and like i said in my current job a lot of time i'm educating folks who are very conservative folks who did vote for trump for example um and who are just very different in what they believe than i am the other thing with romantic relationships and the fact that we're talking about you know the context of divisiveness nowadays between friendships and relationships it's very values based right like now because everything is politicized it comes down to like fundamental human rights and i don't want to be with someone who doesn't believe that everyone deserves the right to live and to live comfortably you're going to be spending so much time with them who knows down the road if you marry them if you want to have children with them you're going to be raising humans like you're gonna be raising humans that you're who you're putting into this world and it's really important that you feed them the right values and you have to be like a united front in that sense that goes for the folks who are closest to me as well um like my closest friends i feel like we all have very similar viewpoints but that being said we're not the same so i feel like i also have friends who aren't as comfortable with certain things as I would be. Um, not that I'm saying that I'm 100% comfortable. Like if we talk about, you know, abolishing the police, for example, um, I fully believe in abolition, but I know that I have a lot of friends who are very progressive, who are hesitant about it. What I appreciate is the fact that they, they ask, like they're willing to have that conversation. And again, it keeps me on my toes, make sure that I know what I'm supporting fully and provide that to other people. But I also think if we take, you know, my parents, for example, uh, they are from India. They immigrated to this country in 19, in the late 1980s. The thing is, because they worked so hard to come to this country, they don't want to upset the system, right? Like they're just thankful to be where they are. So when I, when I approach things, I am not trying to abide by the system. I think the system is the problem. So I'm looking at things outside of that, which is why, you know, mutual aid arises, why organizing is so important, why being on the ground, why protesting is so important. But for them, they wouldn't do anything like that. Like, sure, they'll donate, sure, they'll vote, but they don't want to challenge anything because it's almost as though 
they don't feel like they can. This system gave them what they have. And if they challenge that, they could lose that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it sounds like as someone, you know, a first generation in this country, you don't have that. You're, you don't have that uh, ability to lose citizenship if you fight against the system. I definitely believe. I think the system just in general needs to be ever-changing. It needs to you know, ebb and flow with the newer generations. And a part of having that ebb and flow is challenging that system, being an activist and you know, fighting for the people you care about. And I think that's the most important thing about this is, you know, finding people you care about. And obviously, when you find people that you care about, they tend to believe in very similar things. And also another thing just about, you know, friendships and politics is you don't have to base friendships and the people you surround yourself with around politics. You know, there are important tenets of basic human rights that if I want to surround myself with somebody I'm going to spend time with, I want them to respect other people and believe everyone on this earth is, you know, has an equal share in how humanity survives today and tomorrow and the future. But it doesn't always have to be centered in politics. And I feel like that's where we become more so in today's day and age. We become so focused, hyper focused on politics and how our identities are tied to politics that we kind of forget about the other things like, you know, connecting over movies or connecting over sports teams or, you know, just these very general things that are important on creating one's self-identity and not necessarily just because you might believe in a smaller government or that person might believe in a bigger government. Obviously, as we've been both agreeing on, there's important tenets in politics that are important to a friendship and people you surround yourself with. But there's also so much more to what creates good friends than just this one or two things. I will say, you know, everything that you're saying makes sense. The only thing that I would say is that even when it comes to you know, sports or movies, those are now politicized, right? It's like representation, identity. So we think about football, we think about Colin Kaepernick, um, we think about movies, and we think about the fact that a lot of movies uh, profit off of um, black death. So it's really challenging in that sense, too, because I feel like now that I know what I know, and as I've grown, I can't really watch anything or consume anything without having that critical eye. But do you think that is more stressful than it needs to be? I definitely, definitely. I feel like I can't catch a break, honestly, sometimes. And it is more stressful than it needs to be. But I also think about the fact that I'm not the one who made it stressful, right? Like, again, it goes back to the systemic roots of every single issue that we have today. You know, if certain things didn't happen in the first place, then would we be where we are now? And of course, that's like more of an existential question. Can we really think that way? Because that's not what happened. And that's like the would have, could have, should have. But, you know, as we move forward, like we're moving forward, right? So everything is how it is now. And that's what it is. That's fine. But I think when we think about identity, like you mentioned, when you're friends with folks who have completely opposite views than you do, a lot of times they could be challenging your identity. Like when I think of someone who voted for Trump, for example, or is pro-life, they're challenging like who I am as a person. They're challenging me as a woman. They're challenging me as a person of color. A lot of times there are things related to age, like they're challenging me as a young person. And the system in itself is built for a specific demographic, um, that being straight white men. But I will say too, representation is important. Like identity politics 
sure plays a role, but we shouldn't get too wrapped up in it either because not all representation is good representation. I mean, there are plenty of people of color, for example, who are extremely, extremely problematic. Sure, I would love to see an Indian in a movie or something or in a show or something or speaking at something, but that doesn't mean that every Indian is great. There are a lot of Indians who are problematic, a lot of people in the Bollywood space or whatever it may be. And I think that that only goes so far. Like, sure, it's great that we have like the first woman as first woman of color as vice president, but Kamala Harris is not that great. I don't agree with uh, most of what she says. I think that she is extremely problematic. I would rather have someone, even if they were not a woman of color, if they are more progressive and can help the community more than hurt it, I would rather have them in office than her. Do you think that that creates more issues than it solves? Like if you're looking for this perfect person to kind of fill this role for you, because obviously your experiences are very different from mine, from very different from any of our listeners that listen to the show. And they probably have that idea of, oh, someone like, you know, Kamala Harris is a positive for me, but may not be a positive for another person. And we're all trying to find this perfect person. And there has to be some level of moderation to choose kind of the best of both worlds, not in a way that you have to give up your ideals and what your beliefs are, but realizing that the world is just bigger than ourselves and realizing that there are more people than just basically myself that need help. That honestly is the number one question. No one is going to be the perfect person. If I were in office, I know that there would be probably 50% of folks who wouldn't agree with what I believe in or what I want. And I mean, honestly, it sounds really unappealing to even be in office um, <laughs> in general. Um, That's why but, I do a podcast. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's really hard because what's the solution? I believe in a people powered society. Mm -hmm. I want, you know, the people to be in charge. But how does that look? Right? Because I mean, could we have millions of people at once dictating how we operate? And if we can't, someone has to be in charge or a body of people have to be in charge. And I don't know how that would be formed because no one is perfect. Is that the point though? And I mean, that again gets really existential. Like, is that kind of what we're supposed to realize about life in general and existing on this planet and existing in this world? I just, I wish I had the answer. I don't, but I also don't think anyone does. And if people say they do, I think they are lying. <laughs> They're full of shit a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would yeah. like to welcome to the show Natasha Sony. Natasha will be working on obtaining her master's in public health at Boston University this fall and hopes to organize and work on policy that primarily focuses on children who face adverse experiences. You can hear more about her journey and her incredibly well-worded and impactful thoughts through her blog at www.natsony.wordpress.com. Natasha, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is really exciting and fun. Yeah, I've been I've been enjoying it so far. So this is something that with the platform I have that I've been constantly like, you know, tweaking and trying to figure out and just how I play a role as a voice in society and a voice of my generation and, you know, just that in general. But what importance do you find in being a good, reliable, solid resource? And like, as we've been talking about in such a heavily 
informational filled age. You know, we follow each other on Instagram. You kind of always seem to be on the pulse of what's important. The reason why I utilize the platforms I have so much is because I know that there are countless people who don't have those platforms. I mean, and that being said, too, it's not necessarily me speaking for all those people, but also me uplifting those voices, right? Like, that's the most important thing. Like, I don't want to occupy space that isn't mine to occupy. It's very telling when people don't say anything about what's happening in this world, whatever that may be, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't mean you have to like speak on every single thing that happens, right? Because then I don't think that's even possible. (laughs) It's really important that if you have that platform to use it to the best of your ability, which is why I think it's great that you have this podcast, for example, or even with me having my blog, like not every blog post I make is about politics or about social issues necessarily. Um, I write a lot of personal stuff on there as well. But I think that everything that I'm writing can help someone, whether it be in their personal lives, whether it be in their professional lives or their activism or their politics. Well, yeah, I think your last blog post was about your siblings. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't always need to be this. And just like this podcast, we don't always have, you know, more, you know, controversial topics. It's sometimes we have Zoheb on and we talk about, you know, movies and the role of movies in our world. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's important to kind of find your lane. And this is one of the conversations we had with the Real is Back Music after the, the unfortunate George Floyd situation here in Minnesota was you just have to find kind of your, your lane and find that lane that you're comfortable in. As we talked about in that first story, I think we're now really starting to question the greater world outside of our own communities. We're starting to question race more. We're starting to question religion more. We're starting to question sexuality more and gender. So a lot more people are having conversations that they would have in private and among friends and family, but now it's become more public. And I do think it's very important that, and this is one of the things I talked about in the episode with The Reels Back, is you don't always have to speak, like you said, on every single situation. You can start picking and choosing the situations that feel more important to you and that you're comfortable with. One of the things that you know I was kind of really upset about with the George Floyd situation and Instagram in general, because I don't use any other social medias really, a lot of people were putting out posts that said, silence is violence. And I understand the bigger idea of that, but a lot of people, this is very new to them. You know, you have to kind of lead people by the hand into these uncomfortable situations, because if you just start by jumping into the ocean in the middle of a storm, a lot of people are going to sink and drown and they're going to hole up into their beliefs and they're not going to want to challenge those beliefs ever again. There's different levels to challenging those beliefs. And I think just being thrown into the deep end isn't always the way to do it when it comes to sharing your thoughts publicly. And I've been doing this for almost a decade, so I'm comfortable in the space, but it's not a very comfortable space to be in, to share yourself so personally and to be so vulnerable. It's good for people to find a space and find a lane that they're comfortable in and peruse that lane, spend some time in that lane, kind of get to know the, the 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 environment, and then being able to kind of push themselves greater and really grow and have a good base to grow from. You mentioned some interesting points. First being that using your platform, sharing everything that you share, you know, being aware of what's going on, even that's all like very paradoxical. Because mm-hmm. on one hand, um, I do think that if you have the privilege to have a platform, depending on who you are, it's important to speak out. But on the other hand, 
I also don't think any of us should speak on everything because that could honestly cause more harm than good. Mm -hmm. If you are not well educated on what's happening, you could very well be spreading misinformation, which causes, you know, heightened anxiety for everyone and may even cause something worse than that. What I try to think about and what I try to remind others of is that, for example, when we talk about George Floyd's murder and how a lot of people, that was their wake-up call. Even though Black folks, Black men have been uh, murdered by police, murdered just in general for centuries. Even though that's not new at all, a lot of people didn't realize that. And mm -hmm. it's important to ask, why is that the case? And it's because a lot of things are hidden. Um, it kind of goes back into the conversation we were just having with the first article, the history of this country, the history of this world, and these issues has been kept from us for so long. And that's within the education system, that's by the government, that's by a lot of people in power. And now finally, more is starting to be uncovered. And, you know, there were obviously people before our time who were revolutionaries who did, you know, who were up there activists, um, you know, like even if we talk about like the 1900s with like MLK, even with like Angela Davis or with Malcolm X, they knew something or they were trying to share something that nobody else was sharing, mm -hmm. you know, but who's going to believe them over power structures? Who's going to believe them over what you learn in school? I mean, I don't even know when it really clicked for me, the fact that we're on indigenous land, the fact that we are where we are, um, that it is stolen land, you know, because when you go through school and you learn about Thanksgiving, you know, you end up making hand turkeys and cornucopias and <laughs> talking about, yeah, like just talking about, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. like 1620 and everyone coming over and all of that. But you don't talk about the violence that occurred, the violence that was done to Indigenous folks and the fact that that violence still happens today. Everything is so nuanced. And I don't mean to use that as a way to say that things are too complex that we can't discuss them because a lot of things are just straight up what they are. And we just have to, again, face the music. But it is very paradoxical because you don't know like what you should be sharing, what you shouldn't be sharing, what's true, what's not true. Well, I think you you have a responsibility, at least the way I see it, uh, having a platform and you know having the privilege to be able to share my thoughts and be in a country where my freedom of expressions are you know respected on a federal level is to have that responsibility to do the research, you know, like I've recently even been changing the way I correct episodes where it's in the moment corrections. It's very apparent here right now with the situation with Winston Smith here in Minneapolis, where, you know, the first story that I read said something different. And then I think two days later, the news articles are completely different. Mm -hmm. As humans, we have a responsibility to understand what we're putting out in the world. If people want to take time, you know, will I post something about the Winston Smith situation. I might, but I might wait until the whole situation is put out there so I know I can give something to my audience that is reliable and doesn't change the next day I put it out. Humans need to be more responsible in what they share and feel that they trust where they're finding their information from because I'm not on the ground in Minneapolis interviewing people and finding the facts. I'm trusting that the systems in place are accurately reporting these things so that I can take that information, come up with my own conclusions by taking a bunch of different information and then sharing that to my audience and creating that trust between my audience. Because I do 
want to get to a place where my audience doesn't go full 30 seconds to Mars and Jared Leto and create a cult, but they trust that what I'm putting out into the sphere of the world is accurate. I definitely agree. And what you're saying actually gives me a few thoughts, which are pretty much advice to um, anyone listening, even to you, even to me, folks who do have a large following, especially influencers, especially white influencers who don't speak out on anything. I find those folks really problematic because you do have a platform. And the thing is, you are earning your living based on who's following you. Um, You're earning your living on the backs of other people, oftentimes from sponsorships, from brands that aren't always the most ethical. And so if anyone in that realm or who wants to be in that realm is listening, I think that's what you have to remember um, going forward. Like, I know that your job is to have people to like you, but (laughs) do you really want someone who doesn't have the same views that you do on your page following you? Mm -hmm. You'll be just fine if you lose however many followers. Like, you'll still be earning your millions of dollars, right? I also think, too, that while it is important to wait for all of the accurate information, there are a couple of things like right off the bat that are important that I think everyone should be in agreement about. One being the fact that if we look at Winston Smith's murder, for example, regardless of what happened, and I feel like nowadays most people don't agree with the death penalty, for example, or capital punishment, if you do not support that, then it doesn't matter who he is or what he was doing, he didn't deserve to die, point blank. What's really telling about that is the fact that you have white men who do, who literally kill people, like we know they've killed people, and they are still alive, right? Even if they were arrested, even if they were arrested, which is like a huge if in the first place, mm-hmm. they're still alive versus Winston Smith is now no longer with us. That's what's hard. Like it goes back to what we were just talking about with social media. Like you can't really trust media outlets or cops or those in power to give you the right information. So I feel like what I've been able to do, and I know that not everyone has this ability, right, Mm -hmm. is surround myself through social media and also just in life um, with people who are on the ground, even if I can't be. Yeah. And you you have a trust of these people and you're not, mm-hmm. you can say, all right, if this person reports this thing, I feel good that this is factual information because they have a a list of, all right, they've been right on this. They've been right on this. They've been right on this. They've been right. They have a track record that shows that they mm-hmm. can be a reliable source. And I think that's important for people to find those people that have this track record of being reliable And yeah, following a bunch of those people and surrounding yourself with a bunch of those people. So you're getting information from all different aspects. And to the awaiting or not waiting, I don't really think in the end, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Regardless of if you wait or if you don't, there are going to be people who say say things right away. And there are going to be people that don't say things right away. And just like I was kind of saying in the beginning, fill in the space that works best for you because you're going to have the best impact on society by finding a space that works for you and not trying to fit into a space just because you feel like you have to fit into that space. And I also think too, 
you don't necessarily need to create something new to say. Like you don't need to have your own statement. A lot of times oh, I'm a very good point. resharing something that someone could say much better or more eloquently or someone, or again, someone who's actually on the ground. Like my voice and my thoughts aren't always needed, but if I can repost someone else, if I can boost someone else's perspective, mm-hmm. that is more telling and more important. Like that's the way to go too. So I think that's kind of why people feel so much pressure. They feel like they have to come up with something new and original to say. But it's really just about if you trust someone's perspective and they share something, go ahead and reshare that. Um, there's so many ways to do that. You know, whether you retweet, repost, whatever it is. And, you know, time obviously tells. Uh, but I think we can all agree that, I mean, again, in the case of Winston Smith, murders like this have been happening for centuries we can all agree that it's an issue and it's kind of like how do we move forward from that yeah you kind of transitioned perfectly into our next segment so i appreciate that and kind of using platforms to promote other platforms but before we move on myself and water cooler talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who help build our show to where it stands today for each new episode of the podcast the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent on the day of their episode going live water cooler talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest as well as a global platform to spread a message of love hope and togetherness and we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Natasha, your charity of choice for today's episode is Kalsa Aid. Do you mind explaining a bit about what kind of work they do and their recent effort in supporting the you know, unfortunate COVID situation in India? So Kalsa Aid is great because they have not only now with everything that's happening in India, but they have been on the ground helping folks over time, especially folks in India. They do have like an international organization as well, but they are I think originally based in India and that's like the specific site that I um, shared with you, Adam, just because that's where I want everyone to focus their time and energy right now. So if folks who are listening don't know the COVID situation in India is pretty terrifying right now and really sad. I'm not sure, you know, as of this week, if it's gotten better or worse, but it's still there. And I feel like, again, it kind of became like an Instagram infographic thing where everyone was sharing it for like a week. Um, And then the next thing came around. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that that happens, but I just don't want people to forget that people in India are still suffering. Mm -hmm. And I also think there are a lot of misconceptions too. So, I mean, I'll just say right off the bat, I do have family in India. Thankfully, most of them are okay um, in terms of COVID and everything, uh, but they are extremely terrified and can't really go anywhere. Beyond that, too, a lot of people think that issues in India arise because of like overpopulation and things like that. But what is really important for people to remember is that it's not overpopulation that's the issue necessarily. It's the fact that resources aren't distributed equitably. Mm-hmm. There there might be enough resources. And I'm not even saying this specifically for India, but even around the world, there are more than enough resources. It's just who's getting them, right? Because they're going to be focused on certain things. And I think in India, especially with the prevalence of Hindu nationalism, um, I worry that the government there right now, um, which is pretty Hindu nationalist, is only going to be prioritizing Hindus versus the other populations um, that we 
have in India, um, which is like the Sikh community or the Muslim community, right? And so that's what worries me a lot too. And I think Khalsa Aid is doing a really great job of reaching everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of what their religion is, what their identity is. And there are so many other organizations doing the work. But I think too, there are also a lot of Hindu nationalist organizations collecting donations as well. And I worry about where their donations might be going. So that's kind of why I chose Kalsa Aid, because I know that they're a pretty trustworthy site. No, I appreciate you uh, being able to share them on this platform as we've been kind of talking about. And uh, because I think a lot of people, specifically in the U.S. and Europe, where COVID is, you know, becoming under control. And I think, you know, Biden just said, like, in a month, we should reach that 70% kind of herd humanity thing. The goal for herd immunity in the U.S. has changed with the recent spread of the Delta variant. And now experts don't have a set percentage for herd immunity, but say that range could be somewhere between 70 to 85 percent. You know, I know there's, you know, like indigenous tribes uh, near the Canadian border that have already gotten like 98% immunity rates in their community. So they're like giving vaccines up to Canada. And that's a, something we don't really think a lot about is America, we're able to afford to get all these vaccines, but not a lot of countries have that ability to A, afford that, B, get the vaccines to the people that need them and C, you know, get people into safe spaces to get to these freedoms that we're having in areas like the US or Europe where it's on the downturn of what COVID is. And you kind of forget that the world is bigger than just your own country, your own state, your own city. Yeah. And it's always nice to kind of highlight causes like this that are saying, hey, this is still happening. Just because it's not happening in your neighborhood doesn't mean it's gone. Honestly, yeah, it, it's truly been so weird to me. And I mean, it's almost some something with which I have to grapple. The fact that you now see people going into Target or whatever it is, going to bars um, because COVID is a lot less prevalent here um, than it is in India. And I feel so guilty in a way almost because it's like, I know that my family in India is struggling with this. And there was a point when there were a hundred plus, I think almost 200 people dying every hour in India from COVID. And the fact that they are still at that point and I'm able to just walk freely without a mask on because I'm vaccinated is just really it's weird to me like I I want the entire world to move forward together and I know that's not possible and it never has been but it's almost more important like anyone listening to this and if you're in the U.S. or some other country where you don't have to take as many precautions anymore. I urge you to think about countries who are still suffering from this and give back in whatever way you can, even if it's simply spreading awareness about it. Um, that's better than doing nothing at all. You know, when a lot of people question if privilege is real or not, I give them situations like this where it's like, exactly, we have the opportunity that we can go to a target without a mask. Even the fact that we have the space to socially distance, a lot of these countries just don't have that space to do the six feet apart. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very good example of the privilege we have just as, you know, Americans and that it does exist in our world. Definitely. Well, all right, Natasha, are you ready to go on to our final news story of the episode? Yes, I am. All right. This is from the Washington Post Education, May 29th, 2021. Critical race theory ban leads Oklahoma College to cancel class that taught, quote, white privilege. Melissa Smith says she has never used the words critical race theory in her Oklahoma Community College course on race and ethnicity, although her syllabus 
does ask students to learn about racial inequality in the United States from health to criminal justice to housing and to, quote, recognize the extent of privilege, prejudice, and discrimination in our society. Kind of what we were just talking about. She remembers taking a similar course at the University of Central Oklahoma in the early 2000s. These classes have been taught forever, she states. But Oklahoma is among a wave of Republican-led states scrutinizing and seeking to reshape how teachers talk about race. This month, Governor Kevin Stitt signed what many refer to as a ban on the teaching of critical race theory in schools, a bill, he said, that would make sure taxpayer money is not used to, quote, define and divide young Oklahomans about their race or sex. A week and a half later, Melissa learned that her fully enrolled class at Oklahoma City Community College was canceled for the summer, a course she had taught for several years. Eric Worrell, a spokesman for the college, in an email stated, after learning more about HBSB 1775, the aforementioned bill, and how it essentially revokes any ability to teach critical race theory, including discussions of white privilege, from required courses in Oklahoma, we recognize that HBSB 1775 would require substantial changes to the curriculum for this class, Melissa's class, particularly. Worrell said the course is not gone, but instead, quote, paused for the time being. The college still believes in teaching about racism, but until administrators have, quote, more time to get this right or to let the legal issues play out with other universities and colleges, the course will remain paused. So basically letting another university jump in first. Republican supporters say that these statewide bans targeting certain teachings are meant to prevent groupthink and shaming of white students or teachers as oppressors. For an example, public school classes should not include the idea that, quote, any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. The bill will also ban teaching the idea that anyone's race or sex determines their, quote, moral character or makes them, quote, inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Critics say these bills are misconstruing the more nuanced treatments of racism unfolding in schools and worry about the chilling effect on teaching of critical issues. Melissa states, Our history of the United States is uncomfortable, and it should make us uncomfortable. We should grow from that. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. And if I don't make you uncomfortable in class, then I'm not doing my job. Teaching on race and racism is a fiercely partisan issue, with the academic lens of critical race theory becoming a catch-all term and a flashpoint for broader cultural wars. The theory, which has been taught in colleges since the 1970s, holds that racism is systemic and embedded in policies rather than just perpetuated by bigoted people. The murder of George Floyd and the worldwide mass protests that followed pushed schools to incorporate more teaching on systemic racism, which prompted conservative backlash. Former President Donald Trump last year told federal agencies to stop trainings linked to critical race theory. Current President Biden quickly rescinded Trump's measures, but Republican campaigns against critical race theory have continued in local state houses like Arkansas, Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas, who have all passed bans similar to the most recent bill passed in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma City, which tends to lean slightly right politically, where Smith teaches both community college and high school students, the City Board of Education denounced the ban. Board member Ruth Fields said the legislation was, quote, an insult in a district that's mostly students of color, and Superintendent Sean McDonald has called it a, quote, solution looking for a problem which does not exist. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt said the law should not keep educators from broaching dark history such as the Tulsa Race Massacre and the Trail of Tears, and stated, To be sure, we must keep teaching history in all of its complexities and encourage honest and tough conversations about our past. 
Nothing in this bill prevents or discourages those conversations. In fact, this bill clearly endorses teaching to the Oklahoma academic standards, which were written by Oklahoma educators and include events like the Oklahoma City bombing, the Tulsa race massacre, the emergence of Black Wall Street, Oklahoma City lunch counter sit-ins led by Clara Looper, and the Trail of Tears. We can and should teach this history without labeling a young child as an oppressor or requiring he or she feel guilt or shame based on their race or sex. As for Melissa and her students, Oklahoma City Community College says it has made sure that students who need Melissa's course for their requirements can enroll in something else and that Melissa will be compensated for the class that was paused. But she says it's, quote, just ridiculous that her course apparently cannot teach about white privilege if Oklahoma law remains in place. Usually, she typically tackles the subject with lots of questions like, what is your definition of privilege? What does that mean? And gives students examples of privilege from her own life. But unless those new laws change, she says that conversation won't be happening. But it's not going to happen in Oklahoma, Natasha. It's going to happen here on Water Cooler Talk. So I think, Natasha, the big conversation from this that has been this partisan issue is, do you see these conversations as being appropriate to have? Short answer, yes. Long answer, one thing that I actually want to say, Adam, is the term critical race theory in itself. Honestly, I know what it is, but I didn't know that it had that title attached to it because how can you think of racism in any other way? I naturally, my mind goes to the fact that racism is systemic. So I didn't even know that critical race theory was like a term for it until, I don't know, this year probably. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from someone who tackles these issues like every single day. So with that being said, it's really interesting that they would choose to ban something like this because it seems like it's coming from a place of white guilt. And I don't know why white guilt is so prevalent because again, it's talking about racism as a system. Like I'm not sitting here saying like you, Adam, are a terrible person because you're white. It's the idea that whiteness is a power structure. It's a part of a power structure. And in this case, being white has more privileges to it than being a person of color, right? So it's not even about- Well, that white individuals have always been the majority rulers throughout history. And they kind of have created the systems because, I mean, it it, it makes sense, you know, it's not something you have to agree with, but it makes sense that if you're in the ruling party, you're going to create policies and laws that support the people that look like you, that sound like you, that believe in the same things Mm -hmm. that you believe in. Exactly. Exactly. So it's tough because the way that I always view it, and I mean, I have this conversation with everyone, um, with my boyfriend with my friends whether they're white or whether they are mm-hmm. it's like how i was just saying um how i have friends who are very left but they still are hesitant to fully support abolition being uncomfortable is a small price to pay for the fact that so much death so much harm so much pain has occurred to a certain community i'm fine being uncomfortable even in my own privileges knowing that that's what I have to do to eradicate the pain that is being inflicted on uh, marginalized communities. Or like I would tell a white person, you should be uncomfortable because if you think about it in the past, like you weren't the one to experience being a slave, right? Like you weren't enslaved. 
black folks were enslaved and white folks were the ones enslaving them. Yeah, I just think people need to be uncomfortable. And I feel like this kind of law um, that they that they have in Oklahoma and other similar leading states is an issue because it's showing that they don't want to be uncomfortable. And I feel like if you're in a position of power, uh, you have to be okay with that. It's interesting because the article mentioned it's okay, like you as a teacher can still cover the Tulsa massacre and like the Trail of Tears. <laughs> their, their buzzword, their buzzword uh, genocides yeah. and massacres that they always go to. Yeah. And it's like, how do you cover that without critical race theory? Mm-hmm. Because those are things that happened in the past. Like those are literally embedded in history. So that's in itself, those are stories within critical race theory. Those are stories that are that are systemic in the way that the way their causes were systemic, but also the fact that they occurred caused, you know, what happens after that too. Yeah. When I think you look at something like to you is one of their buzzwords, like the Tulsa race massacre that just had an anniversary recently. Mm -hmm. And you look at what the news was reporting from Tulsa after that day. And I think been going around social media, but the headline was, you know, two white dead in black riot. Well, that's not exactly, I think it was some KKK members throwing dynamite out of planes and, Mm -hmm. you know, causing this havoc. But like you were saying, so much of what the future in, for instance, Tulsa was created because the media and just the people in general and the people, the ruling, quote unquote, ruling party was able to create a narrative that fit them because it didn't challenge their beliefs. And as we were talking about with, you know, friends of different political beliefs. I'm always someone who is questioning why. As a white male, surprise for anyone who didn't know, as a white male, I understand that history, a lot of history has been dominated by white men. And as I've you know previously mentioned, when that happens, a lot of laws and policies and borders and territories and how we look and uh, treat people is created by those ruling parties. And, you know, I don't necessarily believe in this white patriarch, but I do believe that there's this elite white patriarch. My family came from very poor farmers, you know, whether it be in Poland or Sweden. But I also understand the benefits I've received from that white elite party of the founding fathers. The founding fathers, you know, it's described as they're these just drunken idealists, but really they were a lot of very high profile people in high profile positions that could make that change. But I also understand that I had benefited from that. And I think that's the important part as a white male is to question how we got here Mm -hmm. and what that looks like for somebody that looks different than me, that believes in different things than me, and that sounds different than me. I think people conflate a lot of things together when they're talking about white privilege. Like, white privilege is purely privilege based on the fact that you are white. It obviously intersects, but because you are white, you get there are ways for you to get ahead, even if you are not the richest person, even if you are poor, whatever it may be, you know, like to understand white privilege, you have to remove that detail from it because it's based on the fact that when someone looks at you and they see that they're white, they're probably going to be more comfortable giving you a job or more comfortable Mm -hmm. doing whatever it is that they need you to do. After that, after someone fully understands what white privilege is, then they can go ahead and add in all these other factors such as like class, gender, these types of things. And Mm -hmm. that's where it's difficult because honestly, I I think it's really impressive that before critical race theory was banned and everything, the fact that this college had a class on white privilege, because I feel like that's honestly really hard to find. And 
it breaks my heart in that sense too because there are very few classes that tackle that topic like just in the country in the world probably in general and the fact that that is now not an option at least for right now we don't know what's going to happen is definitely an issue and it's also important to think about the fact that when we ask should our kids our college age adults ready to have these conversations it's like yes they have to be ready they are ready yeah mm -hmm. um where else are they gonna learn it i mean i even had this when i was at the u of m for undergrad i really wanted to implement more of these types of topics into the curriculum for first year students within the college of liberal arts but then i was met with that hesitancy of like a lot of these students are coming from small towns whatever it is, whatever the excuse is. So this might be a lot to like unload on them at once. And I'm just like, they need to have this. Like this is, yeah, it's going to be a lot, but where else are they going to have the opportunity to learn this again, to reckon with the past? I mean, you're 18 years old. I think you can handle a little bit of like, I think you can hear things that are hard to hear. a little bit of 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 a questioning of your beliefs and you know that's why i've always been kind of in the camp that i don't necessarily blame somebody who for example grew up in a rural southern state who grew up around mm -hmm. all white individuals grew up in a town for example a sundown town where viewing a white individual as more important than any other race was the normal. That's a, that's one of the thing when we talk about dividing factors is I don't think race is the most divided factor. I don't think religion. I don't think sexuality, gender. I think location is the ultimate dividing factor of humanity. We're both born in Minneapolis or Minnesota, but if we go far back into our lineages, we became who we are because our ancestors happened to be born in a certain part of the world. And we had no control over that, but it was the basis of everything that we became and everything that our families became and everything that we believed in and everything that we looked like. Europeans have more thinner noses because it's cold and it's better for circulation that way. You look at uh, black individuals having the kind of hair they have because it's better for heat in the middle of the African deserts and stuff of that nature. Mm -hmm. Like that's all it is. It's just happenstance that we have these differences and we've used these differences to create division and to say, I'm better than you just because by pure luck, because it is pure luck that we are here mm -hmm. on this earth, that the earth was even created the way it was, that evolution got us to this point and we're using just the smallest difference to create division, to create war. There's a reason wars still happen. Mm -hmm. We literally kill people because they might look different than us. You know, genocides happen because people believe in different things. They look different. And it's just complete bullshit that it was just per happenstance that your people were in a different location than my people. And we said, because of that, go fuck yourself. Literally, Adam, I think about this all the time. I honestly wish I could shake people sometimes. And, you know, they'll be like, I'm better because I'm white, for example. And it's like, what did you do to be white? You <laughs> Absolutely were born. Nothing. Like, literally, like you, I can't help that I am Indian, that I'm brown, and I'm very happy mm -hmm. to have brown skin. I'm very happy to be Indian. But like, you can't help that you're a white man. You know, I can't help that I'm a woman. It's just so bizarre, honestly. To I always think about it like, because we were born in Minnesota, we have to hate people in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. you know, might like the Vikings and they might like the Packers. And we love those teams and we're diehards for those teams. 
just because we were born in a certain state. That blows my mind every time that that's that that's what causes people to literally attack other people over a result of a football game. I actually think about that a lot, too, because you know how the term bandwagon is really prevalent in sports, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'll say that I support a team, whatever, mostly for fun. And my brother will be like, oh, you're such a bandwagon fan. And I'm like, but you're supporting the Vikings because you were born in Minnesota. If you were (laughs) born someone else, then you wouldn't support the Vikings. You'd support whatever team is there. So how does, how is that not bandwagon? Mm -hmm. I feel like that can be like a larger metaphor for all of this. It's unreal, like the lengths to which people will go. And it really just stems from the fact that people want to be comfortable. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They want to live with what they have. And a lot of times people don't think about the fact that what they have is on the backs of other people. Mm -hmm. I benefit from something because someone else isn't benefiting. And I want a society to be where we all benefit and no one faces the harm of us benefiting, right? Like we should all be able to live comfortably. We should all be able to be happy, healthy, whatever it is. But where we are right now, like me, purchasing something from H&M is harming someone somewhere. It's really heartbreaking. I've had, you know, this similar conversation with Cecil when we talked about like Serena Williams being an ambassador for Nike. And obviously we know Mm -hmm. the Nike situation, but can you do more positive than you're taking away negative? I have a pair of Nike shoes that I really like. They fit my feet perfectly. They have like a Velcro strap because who's tying shoes anymore, Natasha? (laughs) Uh, But I understand because I can use these shoes, they're comfortable, they're better for my joints that I can be healthier and I can live longer and I can continue continue to have, you know, amazing conversations like we're having and I can give more back than I take. Mm -hmm. Having that realization helps make it a little easier that, oh, I have Nike shoes on my feet. I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because like I said, I'm, I'm very left, very progressive and I hate capitalism. Um, I (laughs) think about every day. I think it's horrible. Uh You know, people, even from whoever it is, will say like, How can you say that you hate capitalism when Mm -hmm. when you like shopping or like when you get a seven dollar coffee or when you buy leggings from Lululemon? And I feel like they miss the point. Like if you look at any leftist leaders today, they'll tell you that since we are in the system, obviously we want to dismantle capitalism. But since we are in the system, it's important that you, especially if you're from a marginalized community, especially if you're a young person, especially if you're working class, to take advantage of it while you're in it. You can benefit from the system while also trying to change the system. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you exist, if you are born, you're going to be involved in capitalism. Because first of all, If you're born, your birth itself literally costs however much. The average cost of having a vaginal birth before health insurance in the U.S. is $15,371. And then from then on, like you need food, you need water, you need all these things. And like, and I'm not the one who said that they should be commodified. I'm not the one who said that any of this should be the way that it is. But since it is that way, and I have to survive to enact the change that I want to enact, I'm going to utilize what I can. That doesn't mean that I that doesn't mean that I don't boycott things. Like if we talk about Israel and Palestine for example, I'm a huge supporter of the BDS movement and there are even businesses within the Twin Cities for example that I don't visit because they have done something problematic whether it be something racist or not supporting their unions. Um and I will fully do that, but that's because I can get those things from somewhere else. Like I don't need to get 
uh, Sabra hummus because there are other hummuses that exist that don't cause harm to Palestinians, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways to combat these things. And I think people also need to realize too that when a piece of clothing is more expensive or when coffee is more expensive, it's because that person who's making it is being paid ethically and they're being paid a living wage and they're working they're working in ethical conditions. So yeah, I'm willing to spend a little bit more if someone is going to be okay because of that. And of course, you're going to find issues with every organization. It doesn't matter who they are. Anything operating within capitalism is problematic. I mean, I truly believe that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, but that's how we're going to live, right? Like we would die otherwise. And that is capitalism's issue in itself. Like it's not our fault that we need it to live right now. But I hope we get to a point when things aren't the way that they are. Well, and that's kind of a lot of what I think more so our generations are really questioning is the sacrifice of now to help the betterment of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at something like student loan debt. I went to school for one year and ended up with $40,000 in debt. And because of having to pay those debt payments, I couldn't do a lot of things in my life. I can't go on this trip or I can't travel or I can't eat this or I have to eat rice and beans every week. Mm -hmm. And now I look at, you know, the conversation with student debt relief and looking back and having to pay, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you know, every week, month, year into the thousands and just tons of money. And I look at student debt relief as someone who's paid off just about all my loans. And I say, heck yeah, I'm for it mm -hmm. because I don't want anyone to have that same experience that I had or even looking at the minimum wage. You know, I remember my first job was like 875. That fucking sucked <laughs> to get paid that and to have to work my ass off. And I don't want anyone else to have to experience that. I'm willing to make that sacrifice of experiencing that and trying to make it better for the next generation. And I think that's the primary purpose of what humanity stands for is making life easier for the next generation, for that next person in line. You know, I don't think life will ever be this perfect utopia, but just being able to make it just even like a fraction of a percent better for that next person, I'm willing to sacrifice a bit and give up some of what I have so that that person can have just even a tiny small sliver of a better life. Exactly. And and to, to add on, I don't even look at that as a socialist or Marxist ideology. I just look at that as being a good human. I mean, yeah. Like, it's honestly, again, so peculiar to think about the fact that everything that I want, everything for which I'm advocating, is just what a decent human being should want. The fact that people think all these different issues are so radical is the product of, you know, all of these systemic things. If we go back to critical race theory, if we go back to capitalism and how that's also based in and associated with racism um, and sexism and all these different things. And just having that individual individualistic mindset, I feel like in my personality, like even, even from the moment I was born, I just don't think I have that in me. A lot of people, even if they thought that way at first, don't have that in them now as well. A lot of people our age, a lot of people, young people. That's why it frustrates me because once you get into the workforce, um, you work with a lot of people who, even millennials or people who are older than that, who don't who just don't get it. Like, yeah, sure, you had an unpaid internship, but that doesn't mean that the next person should have one. I had to walk home from school up a hill both ways in the freezing rain and freezing cold. It's like, 
all right, yeah, I get that, but that doesn't mean the next person has to. Yeah, the issue with internships being unpaid goes exactly back to racism. It goes back to critical race theory. Like, who does that benefit, right? It benefits primarily white people, primarily white men, because people of color, because of the disadvantages that they've been dealt, can't have an internship like that because they have to work to earn money to live because they're not given again, the same jobs, the same benefits that someone else would have. Well, and especially especially white Americans in the U.S. have more generational wealth than, say, yeah. a, a black American family in the U.S. because of, you know, I've talked about this in our conversation with Dr. Michael B.C. Rivera. Before Lincoln's death, he had planned to give a bunch of land to freed slaves. But then the next president, Johnson, I believe I'm blanking on the next president, the 17th president. Yeah, Johnson. But he took away those lands. And so white individuals were able to build this wealth through real estate that those same black individuals didn't have the chance to build. So they're behind in the race. I love to use the example of we're going to the same race or we're racing in the same category of races. I'm not too much in the tracks. So I don't know the different categories, but we're going to race in the same race. I just happened to have a really hearty breakfast. You didn't because you had to work two shifts the night before, even though everything in that situation on the outside looks like we're even, there's not exactly it's it's really tough i think we're in that time where a lot of folks like we still have the boomers we still have people even before that time and then we have young people and we're coming to like this point when we're like butting heads when we're butting heads all this ties into another point that is a bit related as we're talking about education within schools what worries me more is what kids are conditioned to knowing at home. Mm -hmm. Someone isn't going to choose a class on white fragility or on issues with capitalism or whatever if they are against that from the get-go. I mean, I see people in my hometown, in, in Rochester, people who live on my street who are Trump supporters. And then I also see that they have like some really little kids. And I'm like, what are they telling them? It worries me a lot because I don't know what they're saying behind closed doors. Who knows? Like they could be saying really racist things. But don't you see that? But can't or can't you see that maybe those same Trump people look across the street to the other side and say, well, what kind of ideals are they fitting in their head? Like, you know, the, the common Marxist, communistic, yeah. socialistic ideals, you know? So I think both sides are kind of, I think you had a very beautiful point. Both sides are kind of wondering what's being said behind closed doors mm -hmm. and then what's being taught in public and how is that teaching being perceived once they get home? That's a really good point. And I also think that, People get really caught up in labels like we've been talking about with even with social media and such. Someone slaps communism onto something and then suddenly like everyone just can't wrap their heads around it and like doesn't <laughs> even know what it is. We're back to the Cold it, War and fearful of communism and the Red Scare. Yeah. Which it's like, okay, I didn't realize that again, like why is it radical for everyone to have health care? Like why is it radical for racism to not exist or why is it radical for women to be in charge of their own bodies or anyone with a vagina, I should say. It's really frustrating to think that because, you know, I can only control what I say behind my closed doors. But what I'm but I feel as though, you know, what I say isn't tearing anyone down or any community down. It's more so just wanting every community to be 
treated with respect, with equity, and love versus other folks. And honestly, I'm not even saying this specifically with conservatives, but I think a lot of people have really ill horrible wishes towards certain communities and i I mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say a lot of people i think we tend to give generalizations to either party that are fair at some points unfair in other points we don't know what's being said behind closed doors so i don't think it's correct to kind of generalize what we think is being said i i honestly believe that you know, there are certain, like we talked about in the first story, there are certain aspects of politics that are important to the ideals of just how you live your life. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think politics are as big of a representation of who someone is than what we believe it might be or what it's seen as in the media. You know, there's so much more to a person than, you know, how they may vote every November or hopefully every two years. People remember there's other elections other than just the presidential election. But we get so hyper focused on that, that we create this villain in our head that's not necessarily there. Mm -hmm. And that's something I learned when, you know, I was traveling and kind of doing a road trip around the U.S. and just talking to people from every walk of life is, holy shit. These people are so similar to one another, but it's that one, two, three percent that's different that we hyper focus on and we create a villain from that person. And rightfully so, there are villains mm. from either side that believe in, you know, horrible things and believe in, you know, kind of what you were saying on, you know, hateful things and things that put down people in society. But the majority of people are good people and just want the best for their community from their society. But that road to get there is just different. And so it's very dangerous to create those generalizations because that's how we create more divide is by saying you're a villain because you believe something different than me. I think you have good points. I I will say like I do correct myself from before. I don't mean like a lot of people like the majority of people of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean I think too I am definitely someone who likes to believe the best in everyone and so it really hurts like it pains me when I see such horrible things happening right and so sometimes it's kind of like fighting that line between being optimistic and being realistic Mm -hmm. and sometimes being realistic is can also be cynical with that being said people also need to remember that you wanting the well-being for your community or someone else wanting the well-being for their community doesn't come at the expense of the well-being of your community. Yes. I mm-hmm. think we do need to just have more of a cooperative society and like everyone needs to understand that we all should want the well-being of everyone. Again, it's like why does my well-being have to come at the expense of someone else's or vice versa? Mm-hmm. That's what people miss and I think people miss that because their minds operate within the system that we currently have and it's important to again, step outside of that system. Um, I mean, I even struggled with this in the political science classes that I took in college. I majored in political science and it really frustrated me because I felt like I couldn't participate in the discussions because they all were within the constraints of the system that we currently have, like this world system, the capitalist system, the governmental system, whatever you want to say, it was always within that. And I was always thinking, about the whys like but why is it that way like why can't we be doing this you know why are things the way that they are and i don't think people really look at things from that perspective um as much as they should and so then it makes me feel misunderstood 
to be honest. Like, yeah, and I think that's you know kind of the ideals of what critical race theory is. It's just questioning the why. You know, these are you know ideas that go back to all the way to like W. E. D. Du Bois. You know, these are ideals that just haven't popped up overnight, and I think a lot of people think it has because. You know, especially being in an audio space, words matter.、Mm-hmm. If you ask ten people the definition of critical race theory, you would get ten different definitions. You know, I've always said that that's why something like "All Lives Matter" exists because everyone has a different interpretation of what "Black Lives Matter" means. You know, there's this general idea of what it means, but once you can start poking holes in one of those ten people's beliefs, then that other side, that opposing side, is going to say. All right, this is how I get in. Not necessarily attack you, but debate you on what you believe because you're not in this. Not necessarily groupthink, but you're not in this well-structured idea of what you're fighting for, and that's become a real issue in today's politics and activism. Is you have thousands of people that are going out, and you have a thousand different people that have a different idea of what that protest means. I think it's good to get out and you know share your voice. When you start having so many different beliefs of what an idea can be, you have the opposing side that able is able to poke holes in all these little things because the opportunity is there and the. Opposing side, not even I'm not even talking politics or you know left or right. Just the opposing side of any situation is looking for an opportunity to get their word in and say, well, oh, you believe this? You know, I think a common thing with something like the Black Lives Matter movement is,、uh, and I think Terry Crews has talked about this, but why aren't you caring about the kids that are dying in the inner cities of Chicago? Well, that's not really the ideals of what the original idea of Black Lives Matter was about. But somebody from the opposing side can say, well, this is why all lives should matter. Words matter. The definition of how we understand those words matter, and I think that's really getting lost these days. And that's why there's so many, you know, opposing people coming up to say. We shouldn't be teaching critical race theory when critical race theory is really just questioning the why behind how we got here in history. Part of me wishes that we could create some kind of like communal activism organizing political dictionary so that everyone was just on the same page. <laughs> yes, because I feel like I mean even with myself, every day I'm learning something new about a certain term, about like why a certain term is problematic or what it actually means and why I shouldn't be using it or why I should be using.、It. If we go back to whether it be. Um, kids being killed in inner city Chicago, or whether it be whatever else it is, and a lot of times people will try to not necessarily with that example, but people will try to deflect from Black Lives Matter by saying like, okay, what about you know black on black crime, or what about yes,、um, mm-hmm. what happens like when someone robs a store or assaults you or whatever it is. But people again, it goes back to critical race theory because. It's all systemic, right? Like the reason why you see people looting, the reason why you see people doing what you would never even imagine doing, is because they need to survive because of the history of what their community has faced. It's because like slavery, segregation, racism, like all of these things existed to put them at a disadvantage. You can't distract from that point. Like it's like it almost further reinforces、uh, why we're fighting for what we're. Fighting for it's hard to see because you can't redo the past and you can't redo hundreds of years of suffering. But I feel like people need to understand like the reason why things are 
the way they are now is because of that. Well, Natasha, I think that's a, a good way to end it. I think if we kept going, we could go on for another yeah, two hours. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to follow along on Natasha's journey or just connect with her for more informational resources, you can do so by following her on Instagram and Twitter at NatSony. Once again, that's at that's on Instagram and Twitter at NatSony. And as previously mentioned, you can follow her blog at www.natsony.wordpress.com. And of course, as always, to make it easier for you, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Natasha, as a fellow Berkworm, it, it was crazy that you shared your Goodreads. That's, I've never had that before, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> but real quick, what is a book people who enjoyed this episode should be reading? Oh my gosh. I am so glad that you asked this because I wanted to share some book recommendations anyway. Um, but my favorite author is Ta-Nehisi Coates. I recommend reading my favorite book, is We Were Eight Years in Power by Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's kind of like a collection of essays. He did testify in front of Congress for reparations for Black folks. Um, so highly recommend reading honestly anything by him. He has fiction and nonfiction. That's what I recommend. Uh, for everyone listening today. All right. As always, thanks to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Natasha, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and, well, just trying to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. So, Natasha, we are now to my favorite part of the show, where I briefly hand off my baby to you to close out the show however you see fit, whatever final words you think need to be said. The floor is yours. Well, thank you, Adam, for having me on your show today. And the one thing that I will leave with everyone is remember that everyone has a baby in the back seat. You don't know what people are going through. You don't know what their experiences are. Instead of making assumptions, try to imagine things from their perspective. Have a little bit of empathy. Um, and I assure you that this will make your life and their life easier. Uh, that goes from interacting with folks in restaurants and coffee shops, uh, make sure to tip to, you know, your best friend. Everyone has a baby in the backseat. And I think that's something that I hold near and dear to my heart. And I hope that you all do too. Well, I appreciate those beautiful words, Natasha. It was a wonderful conversation. You are more than welcome back for another conversation anytime you want. I think we have another two to 20 hours left in us. <laughs> uh, but listeners, until next time, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.